If you have your Bible on, you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we're going to look at the last couple of verses. Ephesians 6, 23 and 24. How's everybody doing today? Doing good. I am glad you're here. Don't I look good in my sport coat? Yeah, I told y'all I got a tailor. Come on. You know, Kobe's not the only one that's got a sport coat in the closet. Eat your heart out, Kobe-licious, wherever you are. There he is. That's what I call him. I call him Kobe-licious. I used to call Cody Cody-licious, but then we hired Kobe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Ephesians 6, 23 and 24. Let's read the word together. Ephesians 6, 23 and 24 says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. God, I pray for the people under the sound of my voice, those watching online. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you want to speak, what you want to say to uh, your bride today. Move in our midst. Uh, uh, let your presence be so, sick, so thick in this place that it's, that it's tangible, that we just clearly know that you are, um, that you're here. Got to pray for your anointing. I pray for my word, tell me to say what you want me to say, nothing more, nothing less. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. You know, most love I have found is particularly fickle. It's, uh, it's fragile, it's situational, it's conditional. And I know that these are the kinds of things that we aren't supposed to say out loud, but I believe that if you really think about it, you'll know that what I'm saying is true. That when uh, the majority of you look at your lives and you look back on people who have told you that they've loved you in the past, I imagine uh, most of them are gone. And I'm um, talking now about like former friends or past relationships or people that we used to know that we once considered family. I mean, sure, uh, some people stay, uh, but most people go. And just so we don't sound uh, overly judgmental, you know, or uh, hypocritical or self-righteous, let's turn the mirror, you know, back on ourselves a little bit to uh, how many of you in your past have told people that you loved them and now they are no longer a part of your story or no longer a part of your life. I mean, the reality is um, this thing works both ways. And that's because uh, love is a fragile thing. It is so easily corruptible. In his book, A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Aken says that he believed that the great enemy of love is what he calls a creeping separateness. A creeping separateness. He argues that when people cease to do things together, especially people in relationship with one another, when people cease to do things with each other, when they intentionally begin to seek out separate interest, when they stop giving each other the proper amount of attention, he says that's when a relationship is really in trouble. He says uh, a lot of times we think the problem in a relationship is unfaithfulness or hate or boredom, but Vinokin says no, those are simply the results. He says the creeping separateness is often uh, the failure behind the failure. It is the drift 
that ultimately leads to the disaster. Now, I only mention that to you this morning because I want you to think about it in the context of your relationship with God. And for me, this is the big idea. If you stop spending time in God's Word, if you stop spending time with the King, if you stop spending time worshiping with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then don't be surprised when God feels distant. Don't be surprised when you start to feel that creeping separateness slip in. Just like any other relationship, our relationship with God has to be nurtured to remain healthy. This is why Jesus himself called us to abide, to remain, to stay connected to the vine. And my guess is some of you right now, whether you're watching online or you're in the place, some of you, when you look at your life right now, it feels like God is far off. Like you look at your life right now and you can feel yourself drifting. You can feel yourself slipping a bit. And what I need you to understand is that is not because God has moved, but because you have. Uh, we fade. God stays. Why? Because God's love is incorruptible. The love of God is incorruptible. The Greek word Paul uses there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, that gets translated to incorruptible is the word aftharsia. It's the Greek word aftharsia. Aftharsia is only in the Bible seven times in the New Testament. Four times it gets translated to the English word imperishable. Two times it gets translated to the English word immortal. And then one time here in this text, it gets translated to the word incorruptible. Now, Think about how different that kind of love is. The love that most of us know is fragile, situational, it's conditional. The love that Paul is talking about in this text is imperishable, immortal, and incorruptible. Church, if you would allow me to, I would like to speak a word over you this morning. I would like to make this declaration, and here's the truth, okay? What I'm about to say to you is not particularly profound. It's something that I guarantee you, you have heard before, but the reality is if you'll let the truth of these words sink into your heart, it can legitimately change your life. Here, here it is. Are you ready? God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Bob. God loves you. Chris, God loves you. Jackie, God loves you. Greg, God loves you. Abel, God loves you. Jocelyn, God loves you. And he doesn't just love you, but he loves you with a never-ending, never-changing, never-going-away kind of love. God loves you. And what that means is you can stop looking for that kind of love in other people because they're never going to provide it. And you can stop looking for that kind of love in other places because you're never going to find it. Imperishable, immortal, incorruptible love can only be found at the throne of God in the presence of Christ and by way of the Holy Spirit. Somebody in the room say amen. God loves you. First John 4, 8 says that God is love. John 3.16 says God so loved. 
Love was God's original plan for our redemption. Love is the thread that keeps God close even when we stray. Love was the baby in the manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Love is the miracle worker who still walks among us, making the lame to walk and the blind to see. Love was purity and perfection and peace nailed to a tree. Love is the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ poured out on our behalf. Love was in the upper room, the nail-scarred hands, and the empty tomb. Love is resurrection. Love is hope. Love is a bowed knee. Love is a church united and sent. Love comes from God and is a force meant to be used by the church of God to build up the kingdom of God. Love gives. Love serves. Love sacrifices. Love goes. Love does. And I have good news for you this morning, church. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And that love is available to you right now. His love is available to you right where you are. One of the ways that we should know that God's love is imperishable is just by looking at the cross of Christ. Okay, the, the Roman soldiers tried to beat love out of Jesus, but they couldn't. The Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to silence the voice of love, but the word still resounded. Y'all remember what Jesus said, at least some of what he said from the cross. His body beaten, he's bloodied, about to breathe his last breath, and he cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They couldn't hit him enough times. That's what imperishable love looks like. Then humanity tried to put love to death, but he rose again because, as Paul tells us, this love is immortal. Henry Nouwen says that Jesus lived his life with the trust that God's love is stronger than death and that death, therefore, does not have the last word. And the resurrection, of course, proved that he was right. Love imperishable. Love immortal. Love incorruptible. And maybe most important for us, love that is available. Now, maybe some of you in the room are going, okay, Brock, but how, how do you know that God loves me? Like, how can you say that? You don't know me. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know my past. You don't know the mistakes that I have made. Well, let me show you a couple of things, okay? And here's the first one. First reason I know that God loves you is because 2,000 years ago, he sent his very best for you. 2,000 years ago, he sent his very best for you. Over the course of the next four weeks, the church moves into a season of Advent, and we will spend that time. Our Advent theme is going to be now here, and we're going to spend that time celebrating the incarnation and Christ coming into the world. But what I need you to understand right now, today, church, is that when the Father sent the Son into the world, he held nothing back. This is one of the reasons that it bothers me a little bit when I listen to a lot of of like the lyrics of a lot of modern uh, worship songs. Because so many of our worship songs, at least to me, they sound really whiny. 
I mean, it's just this constant, like, crying out, being like, oh, we want more. God, we want, give us more of you, more of your touch, more of your power, more of your presence, more of your peace, more of your love. It's just this more, more, more. And while those requests aren't theologically untrue, they do, I think, reveal in us a deep dissatisfaction that isn't warranted. I think we really need more songs like Hill Songs, Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. Like I sometimes wonder if God doesn't look down from heaven and he, and he sees us going more, 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 and he thinks to himself, but I've already given you everything. I've given you the best that heaven has to offer. I've given you myself. I've given you my son. I've given you my spirit. What more could you possibly want? Now listen, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask God for things. I mean, you know, Jesus clearly tells us, ask, seek, knock. But what I am saying is, we can never forget that in the coming Christ, we have already been given God's very best. If nothing else ever came down from heaven, we've already been given enough. We've, given enough, we've been given enough to spend the rest of our lives engaged on our knees in worship. Father, Son, Spirit, enough. And the reason I can say definitively today that God loves you is not because I know you or because I know your circumstances, but it's because I believe in a full manger, a bloodied cross, and an empty tomb. I can tell you that God loves you because I know the links that my God went for you. I don't have to know you to tell you that God loves you because I know him and I know his heart. You know how you can look at like a, uh, a mom with a newborn baby, and we got a couple in the room today, and uh, they don't have to say anything to each other. You can look at, at, into a mom's eyes, and you can see that the love is there. Nothing, nothing has to be said. Uh, so it is with God. His actions reveal his affections, and his affections are set on you. God loves you. Second, let me show you, let me show you one more thing. And this one, this is for the guilt-ridden people in the room, okay? This is for the people in the room that uh, shame is your go-to, go-to sin. This is for the people who constantly think, like, no matter how many times, uh, you know, somebody looks you in the eye and tries to convince you that God loves you, you think, oh, but you don't know. If you just knew the depths of my darkness, if you just knew how bad it was, Brock, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be making that declaration. That's, that's who this portion of the sermon is for, okay? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. Romans 5, 6 through 10. And I'm going to give you one task. This is... Uh, this is audience participation stuff. We're going to read Romans 5, 6 through 10. And all I want you to do is I want you to underline, highlight, make note of the words that Paul uses in the text to describe the kind of people that Christ died for. Okay? In this text, Paul's going to write about the kinds of folks that Christ came to save. And by my count, I see four things there, and I just want you to make note of them. Underline, y'all ready to go? Here it is. Romans 5, 
6 through 10, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, like I said, in, that, in those verses, let's see, four words that describe the kinds of people that Christ came to save. And I'm wondering if y'all can give them back to me in order. What's the first one? Weak. What's the second one? Ungodly. What's the third one? Sinners. What's the fourth one? Enemies. I mean, I feel like when we read that text, we just need to swim in that one for a minute, okay? We just need, we need to let that one soak in. We need, to let that kind, we need to let that seep into our hearts and into our veins because those verses mean that there is a chance for us. The Apostle Paul puts to death there the idea that Jesus only came for the holy and the pure and the perfect and for people who always get things right. Now Paul's trying to tell us, hey, he came for people like you and me. He came for people who can get things right on Tuesday and then get them really wrong on Thursday. He came for the people who have histories that they aren't proud of. He came for the people who wage war on their sins but who don't always win. He came for the lost and the low and the guilty. He came for the addict and the proud and the hypocrite. He came for the weak and the down and out and ungodly sinners like you and me. That's who Christ came to save. Weak, ungodly sinners, enemies. Now listen to me, church. If you're worse than that, you're probably on your own. Okay, let's be real. I mean, if it gets worse than that, if one of those words don't cover it, weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy of God, if there's something worse than that, you, gotta figure, you need to come up with your own plan, figure something else out, okay? And I don't know what it is, but as long as one of those words fits you, redemption is possible and love is available. Let me remind you one last time today, church. God loves you and he doesn't just love you but he he loves you with an imperishable immortal incorruptible kind of love and not only does he love you but he knows you he knows how you really are he actually does see the darkness he knows the things you do behind the scenes. He knows how great the darkness is that is in you, and yet he still sent his very best for you. I can tell you that he loves you, not because I know you, but because I know him. I know the links that he went for your rescue. Let me encourage you today to let that love in. Let it, let it into your heart. I mean, really feel it. Believe it. Know it. Understand it. Trust it. I think it has potential to change your life. Here in a second, we're going to receive the communion elements together, okay? I'm going to get the lights uh, turned off. Cody, if you want, to come, you all want to come back up and play for us, I'm just going to ask you all to make a couple of lines, grab 
um, the bread and the cup and return to your seat and we'll receive it together. And what I need you to understand is we are receiving communion this morning together by design, okay? Um, you know, if you, if you set a, uh, if you set like a, a, a Coke or a soda on top of a fridge, it doesn't get cold, right? Doesn't work like that. For the fridge to work, you have to take the cup you have to take the soda and you have to put it in the fridge. You close the door and once it gets within, then it'll chill. Man, the same thing's true with the Word of God. As long as we keep it in the external, it won't change anything. As long as it's just words, it won't change anything. We have to consume it. We have to digest it. And that's what we do when we receive the communion elements. We are, metaphorically speaking, taking in the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and asking God to change us from the inside out. And so if you would now, as the band plays, just come up, make a couple of lines, grab the elements, and return to your seats.